Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Southern California Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Michael McConnell, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Richard and Francis Mallory Professor and Director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School. The title of his talk is Executive Unilateralism, Who Decides the Immigration Laws? And it was recorded on February 3rd, 2015. Just this morning, for example, there was a new announcement of one of the legal requirements of the Obamacare statute uh, being postponed, apparently because they're going to be unpopular uh, uh, this April 15th, and so that's good enough reason uh, for the executive to simply decide we won't enforce that just uh, uh, just yet. Um, the uh, implications of this are breathtaking. Uh, a couple days ago, uh, Loretta Lynch, the nominee to replace Eric Holder as uh, Attorney General of the United States, appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and one of the senators asked what you might think is a pretty easy question. He asked her, what if the next president, this is a hypothetical next president, a Republican, which shows just how hypothetical it really is, um, so this hypothetical next president might decide that we simply will not enforce the tax laws insofar as they impose a rate higher than 25%. And he asked whether this would be, in her, in her uh, constitutional view, would this be constitutional for this next president to do? You might think that's an easy question. I mean, after all, Congress writes the tax laws. The president doesn't write the tax laws. When President Reagan uh, tried successfully to bring down marginal tax rates, he didn't do it through some executive order. He did it by working with Congress and compromising and working with them and building a case to the public and having it passed by the representatives of the people. Uh, I think that was... But this nominee, Loretta Lynch, professed that she couldn't answer the question. She said it would require more study whether, she, whether her constitutional view would allow this president simply to cut tax rates uh, uh, unilaterally. Uh, so that is the world we are living in right now. Now, the most far-reaching, the most uh, important of these executive, unilateral executive actions uh, dispensing uh, with the laws has to do with immigration. Uh, just last November, uh, President Obama announced what goes, I, I hate acronyms, but he announced a program called DAPA, which is, but the full title won't tell you any more than the acronym, it's Deferred Action for Parental Accountability. Um, what this means is that for some four or five million uh, illegal aliens in the, now present in the United States, uh, that we will do two things. One is uh, we will give them assurance and indeed a, a card, a, 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 an actual identification card, assurance that they will not be deported unless they violate some other, commit some other uh, crime, mostly a felony. 
And secondly, and more importantly, actually that's actually, the first part gives people assurance. The truth is we weren't deporting people anyway unless they committed a crime. So that is not a huge change in the status quo. Now they have a, a legal assurance, but before they had a practical assurance. Right, so that's not the big deal here. It isn't, it isn't the failure to start uh, to, um, uh, to, to deport people. It's the second thing, uh, which is that they are given a, an affirmative authorization to work and a number of benefits. Here's the way it works. If you qualify, and here the, the people that qualify are uh, people who have been here since 2010. That wasn't very long ago. So people have been here at least four years, less time than I've been at Hoover. Um, uh, and they have a child who is either a citizen of the United States or uh, a lawful permanent resident. Uh, and they have not committed a serious crime. Now you might say, well, how many people of this sort have, why would their children be citizens? But remember that any, any child born in the United States is by birth a citizen of the United States without regard to whether their parents are here lawfully or not. So we're talking four or five million people who have had children in the United States while they've been uh, present here uh, illegally. And if you're in that category, uh, you will report to, uh, and, and starting fe uh, February 18th, that's when this is going to go into effect, uh, you go before uh, an office of the uh, Immigration Service, and you'll fill out a, a form, Form I-821, uh, uh, I, if you're interested in, the, in doing this, uh, it's one page long. Uh, it uh, is completely non-discretionary on the part of the examining official. That is, uh, you fill out the form and the examining official checks certain boxes, and those boxes are exactly what the terms of the DAPA program are, you know, be here before 2010, continuous residence, child, citizen, etc. Incidentally, there have even been announcements that there's going to be no investigation as to whether the statements made by the person filling out the form are true or not. Uh, and so if the, all the boxes have been checked, no further discretion whatsoever, uh, the alien will receive an employment authorization card, an EAD in bureaucraties, and, and this is a, it's a little plastic, it's, an, it's a photo ID. It looks almost exactly like a global entry card for those of you who have, have one of those. It's a, it's a very official uh, uh, document, and it does a number of things. First of all, it will authorize the holder of the card uh, to, uh, to work, so it'll become lawful uh, to employ uh, that person, uh, notwithstanding the fact that they're an illegal alien. Um, but in addition to that, it entitles them to a social security number for c coverage for social security benefits. It makes them uh, eligible for Medicare. Uh, makes them eligible for the uh, earned income tax credit 
I think that's the largest welfare program we have these days, makes them eligible for the additional child tax credit, um, makes them eligible for unemployment compensation, and, and this is really interesting, it makes them, it is the document which states use in order to determine whether uh, a person is eligible for a whole range of, of licenses and benefits under state law. And it is the official position of the Department of Justice that states may not dis uh, distinguish between holders of this card who have been, whose presence is authorized by Congress and holders of this card, now five, four or five million, uh, who have not been authorized by Congress but simply by presidential fiat. So states are not permitted to depart from this. They are required uh, to conform whatever benefit programs they have uh, for, uh, uh, to which aliens are, uh, are, are eligible. Uh, it has to be extended to these uh, as well. Now, no one contends, not even the administration contends, that this is an actual enforcement of the immigration laws. A few days after making his announcement, President Obama, uh, in a public address, said, and I quote, I am changing the law. So the question is, and the question I want to talk with you this morning about, or this afternoon about, is, is this constitutional? And if not, what can be done about it? Uh, now, to begin with what can be done, don't look to Congress. Now, I say that not because the, our representatives are not, uh, or at least the major, those in the majority, the leadership, are, are I think quite sincerely uh, outraged that the president does this uh, end run around, uh, around Congress. There's been a lot of talk that they're spineless or one thing or another, but that's really not the problem. The problem is that they are stuck. And the reason they're stuck is that, uh, that the usual means by which Congress controls executive action that they disapprove of is by a funding cutoff. That means all they have to do is not vote funds. That's an inaction, right? But there's a, a peculiarity of this particular area of the law uh, is that this unit of the Department of Homeland Security is funded through fees without annual appropriations from Congress. So Congress cannot simply not fund this activity. They're going to be funded anyway. Now, Congress could, of course, repeal the law that allows this to be funded by fees, but that is not inaction. That requires the enactment of a law by both houses of Congress with the presidential veto certainly looming. Uh, and well, you might say, okay, well, how about attaching uh, a repeal of this provision uh, to uh, some bill uh, like the appropriations bill for the Department of Homeland Security? There's a lot of it of uh, talk in Washington about doing that. But with the president implacably opposed and prepared to veto, uh, that would lead to a shutdown of the Department of Homeland Security just at an, in the wake of 
the murders in France, which have so many of us reawakened uh, to the dangers of terrorism there and in this country. Um, now, I, it is an ultimately a question of political uh, back and forth, and I'm no expert on politics, but I do have a prediction for you that if the Congress were to go that route, it would not end well. So what might be done, and in this case, uh, the answer, I think, is the courts. And if you know me very well, you'll know I don't, that's not usually my answer. Usually I think almost any institution of government is a, is a more reliable uh, uh, source of help than, um, than the courts. Uh, but there is a lawsuit going on uh, in Texas that I want to discuss with you. This is, it's called Texas versus United States. Uh, I don't know how many of you have read about it in the paper. This has gotten remarkably little uh, press coverage, even though I think it's one of the most important things going on uh, in the country right now. <clears throat> 21 of the states through their attorney general, plus four more states through their governor, have signed on as plaintiffs to this case. That means half of the 50 states in the United States are plaintiffs, suing the uh, immigration officials, especially the Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, to challenge the legality of this DAPA uh, program. Um, the, uh, I, I, I should say, by the way, I've been, just to, so you understand my any personal bias I may have here that, you know, I have been from the beginning and indeed before, long before the suit was filed, I've been informally uh, consulting with the state of Texas, which is leading the way in this litigation. And just this morning, I had a, a long conversation with Texas's lawyer about the SIR reply, which the United States filed uh, on Monday, uh, and what might be the best responses to that. Tim Kaine, who's Hoover, the Hoover Fellow who works on the substance of immigration, has also pitched in. All the Texas lawyers came to Stanford a few weeks ago and practiced the arguments, and we put them through every possible difficult question we could, and Tim was there to make sure that they had the, the uh, details about immigration law straight. And so, uh, we're, we're uh, more than casually interested in this, uh, uh, in this lawsuit. Um, and uh, the, the question, and, and, and it was argued on, on January 6th in Brownsville, Texas, uh, before Judge uh, Andrew Hannon. Uh, by all accounts, the uh, argument went very well for the state of Texas. Uh, and I think that's probably true because as, almost as soon as the argument was over, uh, the Department of Justice scrambled and filed this SIR reply brief, which actually indicates that they just woke up uh, that they have a bit of a legal problem on their, uh, on their hands. Um, so there are, two, there are really two questions in this lawsuit. One is whether the, and they shouldn't be set, you, you must not confuse them, even though they sound as though maybe they're the same thing. One question is whether the administration's action is lawful and constitutional. But the other question is, can the courts do anything about it? Uh, it is not true that whatever is done that is unconstitutional, the courts have a right to correct. They do not. Right? There has to be a properly framed case with plaintiffs who have standing 
and with a request for relief that is within proper judicial authority for the courts to be able to do anything. So I'm going to talk first about whether the uh, action is constitutional and then uh, a bit about whether the courts can do uh, anything about it. So the answer to the first does not give us an answer to the, uh, uh, to the second. I'm going to begin at a kind of high level of uh, generality and then move into the weeds of the immigration statute. The immigration statute is a mind-numbingly complex uh, uh, statute. Uh, I'll try to relieve you of as much of it as I can, but it's important to understand uh, exactly how the uh, administration's program fits or does not fit with, uh, with the details of the statute. But to begin with the Constitution, uh, the Constitution assigns to Congress, not to the President, but to Congress, the power to make laws have, uh, of uniform laws of naturalization and laws having to do with commerce uh, be with uh, foreign nations. Those are the two sources of authority uh, that we have over uh, immigration, and they are vested in Congress, not in the President. And the Congress has indeed passed the Immigration and Naturalization Act, which is this complex, highly detailed specification for uh, what is to be done about uh, immigration. The President's role in all of this is of course he can sign or veto the legislation when it's being passed by Congress, but then future executives uh, have uh, the, are, are subject to the clause of Article Two, which provides that the, the president, and I'm quoting, shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. So Congress passes laws. They they are given the power, and the way it's worded is Congress shall have the power to pass laws. That is not a duty, it's a power. But the president has a duty to execute the laws, or at least to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. An example of the realism of our founders that no law is ever completely 100% executed. What the executive has to do is to take care that it be faithfully uh, uh, executed. Um, this uh, clause uh, has, a, has quite a history to it. I, I'll, I'd love to talk about this because the history is fascinating, but the short form of this is that uh, the kings up until the Glorious Revolution in Britain in 1688 had a prerogative power that was called the dispensing power. Congress. Uh, Parliament might pass a law, but the king had the power either to dispense with it, that is, nullify it altogether, or to suspend it, which is to say put it off for, for a temporary period of time. Are those things familiar to us today? Right. And after the, glori the glorious, this is James I who then used this power in ways which were quite offensive to the majority uh, at the time. He was bounced out in the Glorious Revolution. In come William and Mary, and, a, and the birth of constitutional monarchy in Britain. Uh, and the official most important document that comes out of that is the English Bill of Rights. Uh, our Bill of Rights is named after the English Bill of Rights. The 
American patriots who called themselves Whigs named themselves that because those were the revolutionaries in the revolution of 1688. Our founders believed that they were repeating uh, many, basically doing a, a reprise of the glorious revolution. And the first and the second provision of the English Bill of Rights, the first provision is that the dispensing power is unlawful, and the second provision is that the suspending power is unlawful. And when our framers formed a constitution, um, there was a motion made to give to the president the suspending power. Not the dispensing power, that's too dangerous, but how about the suspending power? So that we can put off statutes for a temporary period of time when, it's, when the times uh, warrant. It was defeated at the Constitutional Convention of Philadelphia unanimously. Not a single state supported it. The suspending power and the dispensing power are, do not belong to the president. And instead, they adopted this clause I've already quoted for you, that the president shall, that's a duty, shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. It is not his right to dispense with the laws or to suspend the laws. Note that the veto power also confirms this understanding of the Constitution. Because the president has the chance when a law is being passed, he can veto it, and then it requires supermajorities of both houses of Congress to enact it over his veto. But that's his shot. But how ridiculous would it be to have this careful plan for a veto at that point with a congressional override if the very next day the president could say, well, I didn't veto it, or maybe it was vetoed, maybe I did and it was passed over my override, but I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist, I'm not going to enforce it. That would give the president a, a perpetual veto with no possibility of override, obviously inconsistent with the, with the constitutional uh, structure. Uh, and, the, uh, and the Supreme Court has consistently interpreted uh, the Constitution this way. I'm just going to quote one sentence from an 1838 decision called Kendall against the United States, where the court says, and you know, this is quoted by Texas in its briefs uh, in Brownsville. Uh, I quote, to contend that the obligation imposed on the president to see the laws faithfully executed implies a power to forbid their execution is a novel construction of the Constitution and entirely inadmissible. So on the other side, uh, and, the, and, and the power that the uh, government uh, asserts in its briefs, first argument, almost first, second, and third argument, almost their only argument is prosecutorial discretion. Now, what is prosecutorial discretion? Uh, to begin with, it is actually not in the Constitution. Um, it is a practical doctrine that is born of the fact of life that not every statute can be enforced 100% of the time. Uh, it just can't be done. We don't even want it done, right? It would be. Uh, and so uh, given that, the executive 
can prioritize. It can prosecute the worst offenders. It can prosecute the offenders that don't have don't have the best, who have the worst reason, or who have the uh, yeah, who have the worst reasons, and so forth. Whatever, some sort of rational uh, system. You think of speed limits, right? Uh, lots of people are speeding. We do not arrest and prosecute all the speeders, uh, but we uh, we exercise prosecutorial discretion with respect to which ones. Um, the uh, the as I say, this is not constitutionally provided for. Uh, the president isn't given prosecutorial discretion. What it, what the Constitution does mean is that, insofar as Congress leaves prosecutorial discretion to the executive, it has to be exercised by the president. Congress can't tell the president which, uh, you know, you should go after this guy and not after that guy. The courts cannot tell the president you should go after this guy and not after that guy. It is the president that is the executive branch, uh, usually fairly low-level prosecutors, uh, who are the, are the sole people with the authority to decide how prosecutorial discretion will be exercised. Right? But the terms under which prosecutorial discretion exists, if it does, are to be set by Congress. The president does not automatically have a constitutional right to have ex prosecutorial discretion. If Congress chose to pass a law and say, we want this, this law we want enforced all the time, that would not be unconstitutional. Um, the, um, uh, and so again, what, are, what distinguishes prosecutorial discretion from the dispensing power, right? Because the president doesn't have the right simply not to enforce the law, but he does have the right not to enforce it in particular cases, and he can have a policy guiding that, right? He can say, you know, we're not going to bother pe throwing people in jail if their marijuana possession is less than a certain amount, or, you know, any, there can be prosecutorial guidelines. How do you tell the difference between that and the dispensing power? That's the real problem that this case in Brownsville uh, presents uh, to the court, is how to draw the line. Well, e the Department of Justice itself and the Office of Legal Counsel memo justifying the DAPA uh, program said something I think is a very good uh, explanation or a good guideline. The, the, the OLC says, and I quote, that actions made on a case-by-case -case basis based upon a policy consonant with congressional policy are presumed lawful. So what are the signs of lawful prosecutorial discretion? It's exercised on a case-by-case -case basis, and the policies guiding the exercise of the discretion have to be consonant with congressional policy. So in order to determine those things, we have to get into the weeds of the immigration statutes a bit. Um, so Section 1324A of the Immigration and Naturalization Act, uh, that's the only section I'm going to identify by number, makes it unlawful to, quote, hire an unauthorized alien. This is the most important enforcement tool we have for the immigration laws. The border is porous. Deporting people is very complicated and expensive, and we don't like to do it very much. So it is not allowing work authorizations is really the key to enforcement of the immigration laws. So 
it is unlawful to hire an unauthorized alien. So, and then the statute defines for us what an unauthorized alien is, and that is uh, an alien who has not been lawfully admitted for permanent residence in the United States, so none of these people fit that category, or authorized for employment by Department of Homeland Security. Then other sections of the INA have very narrow, carefully defined grounds allowing DHS to authorize aliens for employment. Uh, the, one of the key legal issues in this case is going to be when Congress sets up a system like that, does that mean only the specific grounds that the statute allows for authorization count, or the government's argument is that this provision allows DHS to authorize anybody for any reason. They could authorize all 11 or 12 million uh, uh, illegal aliens, according to this, uh, to this theory. Um, I think that that can't be a correct interpretation of the statute because uh, if one provision said you can authorize anyone, then there's no point in having four very specific provisions outlining narrow circumstances in which uh, illegal aliens who would otherwise not be permitted to work can be uh, authorized. And in particular, uh, Congress has a scheme directed specifically at the question of these parents. Uh, remember, DAPA applies to parents of children who are citizens. So basically, uh, you, you receive your work authorization if you've had a child born in uh, the United States. Um, it, has, it has long been recognized that that creates an enormous incentive to come. Right? It's so easy to come than to have a child in the United States, and then voila, my meal ticket, right? And so for the last 65 years, Congress has had the following uh, policy, namely that the uh, parent cannot apply for lawful, any kind of lawful status until their child is 21 years old, and even then, they then have to leave the country and remain out of the country for 10 years, at which point they can return. That is Congress's law. Right? Note how dramatically different that is from DAPA, where the parent can go right now uh, to the, or actually February 18th, can go uh, and, uh, and, have, and categorically be allowed uh, uh, to, uh, to, to remain. And, and, and uh, by the way, I think this is sort of interesting. This, has not been, this was not some right-wing plot, uh, the, the, these provisions. Uh, they've existed since the uh, 52 Act, which is the major act. Um, when the immigration laws were under reconsideration in 1965, the draft of the bill left out this provision. And none other than Senator Sam Irvin. Do you remember Sam Irvin from Nixon uh, uh, impeachment fame? Sam Irvin 
uh, said, oh, well, we need to add the, this language back in. And he said, and I quote, foreigners can come here as visitors and then have a child born here and they would become immediately eligible for admission. And do you know who then stands up and seconds Senator Irvin's motion? Senator Robert Kennedy of New York. Uh, and it passed without uh, any uh, a dissent. So what are the government's responses to this? I mean, it looks as though the statute is quite clear. It's very difficult, I think, to say that DAPA is consonant with the con congressional policy, which is very much uh, the opposite. The, um, <clears throat> uh, I've already discussed their first argument, which is that the language allows them to authorize whomever they want. I don't think that's likely to, to fly. They also emphasize the family unity policies within the immigration laws, and indeed there are a lot of policies within the immigration laws that do try to keep families together. But this parent problem has been treated differently because of the incentive structure that it uh, that it creates, and so although it, uh, children can uh, receive the benefit of, of citizen parents, we don't do it the, uh, uh, the other way. Um, well, and then prosecutorial discretion is their biggest argument, but note that it is not case-by-case -case discretion. That form does not leave room for any discretion. You check the boxes, uh, and the boxes are the very terms of DAPA, Right, uh, and, a, and, uh, and so it just doesn't leave case-by-case -case discretion, and it's not consonant with uh, congressional uh, policy. Uh, then there is one final, um, oh, uh, one, and, and, and one other reason it's not prosecutorial discretion uh, is that it may very well be prosecuted, it could at least in theory be prosecutorial discretion not to deport people Right, to refrain from enforcing the law against everyone. It's a little bit like speeders on the highway. But it could not possibly be thought to be prosecutorial discretion to process them and give them uh, employment authorization cards that are the ticket to Social Security, unemployment compensation, uh, Medicaid, and any number of benefits under state law. That would be as if the cop on the, at the highway uh, pulls over the speeder and says, uh, don't be scared, I'm gonna give you a, tick, a, a, a card that entitles, not only does this entitle you to speed whenever you want to for the rest of your life, uh, but it'll give you free gas at the local station, right? That is not prosecutorial discretion. Uh, Prosecutorial discretion has to do with the fact that resources are limited and so we simply can't enforce the law against everyone. Under this program, uh, the, Depart the Department of Homeland Security is spending millions of dollars to hire a thousand new agents in order to process and hand out these work authorization cards. That is not a saving of resources. Right? It is not an exercise of prosecutorial discretion. Um, there's one final argument, which is the idea that, well, the president has to act because Congress hasn't done it. Uh, uh, president Obama put the argument this way, and I quote, when members of Congress question my authority to make our immigration system work better, I have a simple answer, pass a bill. 
and the day I sign that bill into law, the actions I take will no longer be necessary. Um, now, note first, that's a political argument. It is not a legal argument. That argument doesn't appear in the government's briefs, and for good reason, because it is exactly the opposite of what our constitutional structure sets up. Under our constitutional structure, it is not the duty of Congress to pass laws that the president likes. The Congress has no duty to pass laws. The president, on the other hand, does have a duty, and his duty is to execute the laws that Congress passes. To say that because Congress has not passed a law, uh, he can do the opposite, uh, completely shifts the burden of, of changing the laws. In order to change laws under our Constitution, it require, we have checks and balances. Uh, it requires the passage of a bill by both houses of Congress and the signature by the president. Right? Under the president's conception of this, he can change the bill himself, and so long as a third of either the House or the Senate will vote uh, to uh, uphold him, uh, then uh, he's going to get his way because he can veto any, any bill that, uh, uh, that, that goes uh, to the contrary. This is, um, uh, this is not uh, the constitutional system. So, so the second question is, can the court do anything about it? This is a much harder problem. I do think that the court can do something about it, but I would predict that if there's any legal weakness in Texas's case, that it has to do with this. So the first question is, does Texas have standing? For a court to act, the plaintiff has to have, have, have been injured by uh, the, the governmental action. That's why a lot of these things that the administration have, has been doing, nobody really has standing to, uh, uh, to challenge. So here are Texas's uh, uh, allegations. Uh, they claim and provide evidentiary support uh, that increased numbers of illegal aliens within Texas uh, cost them money. Uh, over a two-year period, Texas spends $1.13 billion on uncompensated medical care for illegal aliens. Um, over a three-year period, they spend $303 million on emergency Medicaid and $106 million for CHIP, which is a childhood health medical program. Uh, and uh, most interestingly, they spend $9,473 per illegal alien child in the public schools of Texas. The Supreme Court years ago held, in a case called Plyler against Doe, that it is unconstitutional for a state to refuse to uh, admit uh, illegal alien children to the public schools. So this is a constitutional obligation. The more of them there are, the more expensive it's going to be for Texas. Now, note that this does require a, a, a bit of an inference about the future, because Texas's claims of injury depend upon the proposition that DAPA is going to encourage more illegal uh, immigration. Uh, they have a demographer who uh, has a 70-page report 
uh, documenting that. I'm told, by the way, that when they told him what they needed, that he said, well, and after I do that, would you also like a report on the law of gravity? Because it is so obvious <laughs> that granting benefits to illegal aliens is going to bring more. All right, that is not, a, I think, a difficult proposition. So what are the cases to compare this to? Uh, a, a great old case we love to teach is called Scrap Against United States. This had to do with uh, some students at a law school being the plaintiffs challenging the decision of the uh, in, in Interstate Commerce Commission as to the rates charged by railroads for recyclable materials. You would think, none of their business, right? They're not in, have nothing to do with recyclable materials. But their claim was that if you have lower rates for recyclable materials, then that will encourage people to recycle. And if people recycle, then there'll be less trash. And these students enjoyed using the parks uh, near their homes for recreation. There'll be less trash. The United States Supreme Court said, good enough for standing. Uh, more recently, uh, and I, I think the the politics of this is deliciously ironic. Uh, Massachusetts against EPA, you may remember from five or six, actually more years ago than that, eight or nine years ago, uh, Massachusetts sued uh, the Bush administration's EPA for their refusal to regulate uh, greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. Uh, so here you have non-enforcement, I mean, Let's give Massachusetts and the Supreme Court the claim that the Clean Air Act really does include greenhouse gases. That was a big, a much more difficult question than our statutory question. But give them that. So Massachusetts is still suing the government for not enforcing a law, extremely similar to the Texas case, right? And so Massachusetts claimed that um, that the greenhouse gas regulation for American vehicles uh, would be, uh, would produce some diminution in greenhouse gases and therefore the seas won't rise and Ma Massachusetts coastline won't be eaten up. Note that the uh, American vehicles constituted an infinitesimal percentage of worldwide global, uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, that China and India are moving full speed ahead. So what was done in this particular case is you know, just the tiniest possible uh, effect in the Supreme Court, said, good enough for standing, right? And I think if they follow the logic of that case and the scrap case, they're going to have to say, well, sure, DAPA has the effect of drawing in more uh, illegal aliens just as more greenhouse gases uh, will uh, eat up the coastline of Massachusetts, uh, and so Texas probably does have standing. Uh, I, how much time do I have left? I, uh, and then this question. So just one last point on judicial power, because it's not just standing. There also has to be an order that the court can issue that is within traditional understandings of judicial authority. And this is where it gets a little tricky because it is highly unusual for courts to order the executive to take action. 
It is, however, not at all unusual for courts to order the government not to take action that violates the Constitution. Now, when I say highly unusual, I do think in an appropriate case the courts can order the executive actually to take action. That's what happened in Massachusetts against EPA. Possibly the best historical example of this was under Richard Nixon uh, when his uh, uh, civil rights division did not cut off funds to a racially discriminatory higher education uh, in the South. And they were, uh, by the way, they, the, it was 65% not non-enforcement, not 100% as here. And the courts did order that. Um, but, but that would be dicey. It is, it's an unusual thing. But Texas is not asking the court to issue an order requiring uh, the actual positive enforcement of the, of the immigration laws. And they're not asking the government to deport anyone. What they're asking is for them to stop handing out the work authorization permits. And that, I think, is a fairly normal, uh, pretty conventional exercise of, uh, of judicial authority. And so, um, you know, I'm, uh, this has happened uh, recurrently in American history. Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson famously refused to give a commission that he was required to give to, Mar to William Marbury, leading to the most famous Supreme Court case of all time, Marbury versus Madison, in which the court directed the president to, uh, uh, to enforce the law, even though he didn't want to. Uh, famous case under Andrew Jackson, uh, I which I quoted from toward the beginning of the talk, Kendall against the United States, where they re refused to pay a contractor for services rendered when Congress had instructed them to uh, do so. Probably the most important famous case in this line when uh, Harry Truman seized the steel mills to prevent a strike uh, during the Korean War and the Supreme Court said without congressional uh, authorization, you do not have the authority to do that. Um, Richard Nixon had cases about, when, about impoundment uh, where he refused to, to spend money that had been appropriated in the courts, about 189 different court decisions ordering him uh, to, to uh, do that. And then Massachusetts against EPA with respect to George W. Bush. All of these cases involve the courts ordering the executive to comply with the law. Now, I am not good at making predictions, but it would not surprise me if 50 years from now, when constitutional law professors are teaching the course about executive power, uh, that Texas against the United States is gonna be the next entry in this list, reestablishing again the proposition that laws are made by the representatives of the people, the president's duty is to execute them. So thank you. <clears throat> For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.